You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at Season 2, Episode 8 of Bugs, entitled Newton's Run. Three evil motorcycle riding Power Rangers stage a raid on the Austin Institute. Inside, Dr. Siegel and his assistant, Dr. Kim, are working on an exciting project to control muscles electronically. An innovation, they hope, will one day restore mobility to people with spinal injuries. For now, they have one living test subject, and that's what the attackers want. Not the inventor, Dr. Siegel, whom they kill, nor the technology, just the working prototype, Newton the dog. Thwarted by security and the quick-thinking actions of Dr. Kim, the attackers escape empty-handed. She calls in Team Bugs. The buggies are introduced to Newton, who, Dr. Kim explains, has been turned into a canine party trick. She's a completely normal dog that can also be completely remote-controlled. Beckett takes an immediate shine to her. Newton, not Dr. Kim. Finding them should be easy. The Austin Institute has a chemical tagging system in case of lost animals. All the attackers were sprayed with the chemical as they escaped. Roz and Ed easily find their lair, but the birds have flown, leaving behind their tagged clothing and a computer with an easily undeleted but cunningly encrypted file. Just then, Wentz and the SSD burst in the door. Team Bugs have bumbled into an active investigation. But the SSD know nothing of the raid last night on the Austin Institute. Reluctantly, Wentz takes Team Bugs on board. Wentz explains that these people are the Nordic Front, a Spitzenbergen separatist eco-terrorist organization with a difference. They use eco-terrorism as a means of blackmailing the authorities. The organization is run by a man named Alkmar. They are believed to be planning a terrorist blackmailing attack in the UK. And somehow, they need Newton to do it. The key now is to keep Newton away from them at all costs. Wentz wants to put him in a maximum security protection facility. But Ed has a better idea. Let Beckett just walk him out there on a leash and take him on the Docklands light rail while Wentz's high security caravan acts as a decoy. That plan works about as well as you'd expect. Not at all. The Nordic front are on Beckett as soon as he walks out the door. They carefully bide their time shadowing him on their motorcycles in the completely deserted streets and trains of the Docklands. An exciting chase ensues, but ultimately Beckett and Newton are separated, with Newton hightailing it out of there at doggy speed. Pity the Austin Institute didn't use any of their tagging technology they use for tracking wayward animals on their most prized possession, Newton. But there's a backup plan. Roz can tech the tech and track down Newton's control collar. Ed and Beckett chase Newton down to an abandoned water bottle plant. Alkmar raids Team Bugs HQ and captures Roz and Wentz, giving the location of Newton to his two henchmen. They capture Ed, Beckett, Newton, and the doggy remote control device and leave bombs behind to eliminate the opposition. The bombs fail. Roz has cracked the ingeniously encrypted file because, of course, she has. They're after Security Facility 47, somewhere in the heart of London. 
Security Facility 47 is the perfect security facility. Completely automated, unmanned, nondescript. It's so human unfriendly, it'll just kill anyone who enters. But not remote-controlled dogs. Inside SF-47 is every kind of warhead, including the naughty ones the good guys aren't supposed to have. Stored there, just in case of World War III, Alkmaar gives Newton a bomb to hold in his mouth, and then they snip a hole in the fence and send the doggy in through the pre-existing doggy door. The caper, pay us a boatload of money, or we turn London into a crater. You have two hours. Team Bugs enter the unenterable facility. Beckett goes deeper into the facility to find Newton, while Ed operates the control panels to turn off the defenses. Ross, meanwhile, tries to track down and eliminate Newton's control signal, which must be originating somewhere nearby. She finds control outside in a bespoke tanker. First, she eliminates one of the henchmen. Then she locks Alkmaar outside the tanker and takes control of Newton, using him to remove the bomb from the facility. Ed is attacked by and kills the other henchmen. They escape with Newton in the nick of time as the bomb explodes the tanker, killing Alkmaar with a much more satisfying final explosion than last week's. The end. So, Newton's run. What do you think? It's um, it's quite a fun episode. I, I did spend a bit of my time ticking off the kind of bugs tropes and thinking <laughs> thinking about um, well, you know, I mean the stuff like once again you've got a a sci-fi thing that is just the MacGuffin. There's no mm-hmm. interest in exploring the the consequences of it, and uh, I mean there are it's an it's it's a neat idea, right? the the kind of remote control stuff mm. there are implications to that thinking about i don't know uh the cybernauts in uh sorry the yep. cybermen in doctor Who, are actually the, the the cybernauts as well you know this idea of augmentation and of, of not being in control of your body that is actually something that was done in a cybernauts episode which you know isn't a fanciful comparison given that We've got that's Brian the new Avengers one, right? Uh, no, it's uh, it's uh, oh, it's the one, the one with, with watches. In with... It. Yes, yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. But you know, I mean, the 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 kind of the the I th- this feels even less deep than the Avengers, and certainly nothing like the Cybermen. And the, the, you know, this is this is as we've said before, this is definitely not Doom Watch. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. are not fussed about the consequences of this technology they are fussed about this technology looking cool and then let's blow some things up so yeah i have here my first note once again there's whiz bang technology being used in a screwball fashion yeah the the fact that looking at that texture the, the idea that you could take somebody who has a spinal injury that they cannot get motor signals to let's say their legs and there will be a way to stimulate that through an external process and move that around could potentially be a huge boon to people thus afflicted. But is the, is the way to go about even prototyping that, putting it in a, I'm thinking otherwise healthy dog and just using them as an animatronic puppet when you want to as a as a way to demonstrate it 
because I think the I think the real problem is going to be controlling this. I mean, is there a button for walk on that guide? Is there a to, button um, for jump and bite somebody? I, how how to, that's to me, the to me what part? To me, one of the the uh, weaknesses in that whole uh, that whole concept was uh, the way in which it was directed, and I think that generally with Brian Farnham back in the director's chair, we had a better episode from that point of view. But whenever it came to seeing anyone controlling the dog, all we saw was basically a calculator keyboard that they just mashed the buttons on (laughs) repeatedly. And there was no obvious connection between the button they were mashing and the actions the dog was taking or any... Because they were because they were literally just picking it up and then instantly being able to control it, so there's no kind of learning curve between how you how you use this. But it did not look like an intuitive interface to me, and it did no. not look like they were using it in a skilled way. That, that I have to say, it's it's very it's very poor translation of tech to the visual medium. And a lot of times, I complain about people who are typing on keyboards and they're obviously not typing. Mm-hmm. You know, typing has a sound to it. Even even if you don't know how to touch type, when you are doing something with purpose, it is not. It's it's not that constant, just no no pattern, no rhythm, no nothing, and uh, it, it's gotten better, it, somewhat in recent years. But you'd think in the 1990s they would have a conception that you can't just mash keys and expect anyone to believe you've done anything meaningful, right? I mean, no, at, at least Ed and, and Beckett should look at that thing and go, uh, left leg forward, right leg forward, you know, whatever, execute. Or whatever. Well, that would be insanely tedious. But yes, it would. And this is, this is actually an likely. example where I think less is more, that if, if you just showed them pressing a, a button that, you know, essentially corresponded to forwards. And then you could, from that, you could infer that actually the whole walking, all all, all of the kind of signals involved that would need to be sent had actually been automated so that your interface was simplified. I'd have been fine with that. It's if, the fact if you could that have just reduced while, it to they, dog while commands. they were controlling the dog, they had to keep constantly mashing the buttons. Like if mm-hmm. they stopped, it would, the dog would just collapse or something they, they needed they needed dog commands sit stay heal you know those that that bark <laughs> that could have been made that could have made sense as a prototype to see if you could do it because each of those requires multiple complex actions coordinating things you know, walk requires that you can coordinate all four legs, that the body be upright. Sit requires that you stop and that you, you know, put the butt down on the ground. And, and so I could see that being the interface that you might try to make for a prototype. But yeah, what they were doing almost looked like you they were implying that you had to program that all on the fly to get the dog to do it. And how did Alkmar figure that out? I mean... To, to work the thing without he didn't steal the well, owner's manual I mean. so yeah it was a cute dog though i mean so <laughs> there's that uh <laughs> yeah i mean i i 
I enjoyed the episode, but there were the little things that just there, there's the bugisms that just this doesn't make any sense. Run with it. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Just go. I, I love the eco terrorists who create ecological disasters. And because, well, yeah, a little bad now is better for the good in the future. Don't worry about, don't think about that. Don't think about that. <laughs> that they're going to. Well, yes. But I mean, that, that, that is the logic behind you don't negotiate with terrorists. And, and are there. They're, they're, ta- they're taking are they the same terrorists? logic and reversing it. Are, are it's not a question of whether they're terrorists, because it's it's the counter-terrorists who take the line that you don't negotiate with terrorists because mm-hmm. it influences future behaviour. And so they're taking the line of effectively you don't negotiate with the government. If you say you're going if you say you're going to, uh, you know, sink this or blow up this oil tanker, then you blow up the oil tanker, even though you're you're causing the the damage. Um in the well, in the same way that government negotiators would say, or you know, police negotiators would say, well, even though we know the terrorists are now going to kill the hostages, we are not going to give in on this because kind of, my of future consequences. Kind of my point is that, and I know that this in modern times, because it's a loaded word, we throw terrorists at everything. Right. I mean, the, 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 the right is throwing terrorists at people who who protest Nazis for crying out loud. Right. I mean, you just throw the word around. It has it's lost its meaning. But yeah. getting back to my thought, what didn't am I not correct in saying that what the IRA did was they planted bombs, they blew stuff up after they blew it up. They said, we blew that stuff up. We killed those people. Get the hell out of Ireland. Is that not more or less their mo and then people would say we're not getting out of ireland they blow more stuff up right i mean no that's the terror that's kind of the terrorist mo it's not i've planted a bomb in it somewhere and if you don't give me 50 million dollars i'm gonna blow it up that's a blackmailer see these guys the yes this guy's mo is not not to generate terror it's on the um slight diversion of the ira but i think your point stands um without going into that the i'm using them because they're pure terrorists yeah (laughs) i i think yeah no i just i just mean in in terms of your your description not being entirely accurate um but nevertheless what we have here is not not i i yeah it's not it's not using terror to achieve a particular outcome which i think is what terrorists essentially do right I, i they do the terror then they get the they try to get the outcome they don't threaten the terror well well, no, they no, do. no, 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 no. way you are because you're, you are because then we'll just keep doing it is threatening the terror. But yeah, yeah. and that's so that's absolutely an implicit part of it. But that's not what this guy is doing because they didn't no. keep it. They kept it a secret. They kept the tanker blowing up a complete secret. That's not absolutely what you want to do. You want to broadcast it loud and wide and said, I did this and I'll do it again not and i I can't uh, think of any example of a terrorist campaign that wasn't essentially about raising awareness of the cause in which it was be you know in in advancing a particular cause being the reason for it being waged you know the publicity mm -hmm. is an essential part of terrorism because in order to strike terror terror into people you need to you need people to know this is what you're doing 
and and the other part that was kind of weird about this was that these guys what were they after because it sounded like what they were after was they were i can't even pronounce the name now at the top of my head but spitzenbergen or something separatists so their freedom their independence fighters from a country they want their own little country but it's because we're gonna save the world from ecological disaster because it seemed to be a little mixed uh mixed there when wentz was trying to explain what they were all about well pick pick a cause do you do you want your own country i hadn't i hadn't, I hadn't uh picked that up about the separatism I, I i i simply thought it was a question of trying to um how how would you put it kind of it extort a extort an ecological price or extort a extort a better future i suppose by by blowing stuff up yeah it was a a little yeah just a little strange um we're back to phasers again i know i'm using that term incorrectly but we're back to ray guns actually one of the one of the things that i i was sort of looking at thinking about the tropes in bugs and making a link that i hadn't necessarily made before is that it does use a lot of conventions and trappings from science fiction even when it's not doing anything particularly sci-fi and i think the the central macguffin in this was quite sci-fi but as we've said it wasn't actually used as anything but a macguffin even when they don't have that you know that 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 kind of fictional science element and it's and it's purely the kind of technology of the day they're still they're still using things that commonly appear in sci-fi series and i think maybe the energy weapons that we're seeing are just one example of that there's another one at the beginning of this episode where you where you have a computer um that uses uh a synthesized voice in order to issue these status reports and everything and you think well what's the point what is the point of that you know you would normally just have a screen read out of these things but it's a slightly futuristic thing isn't it it's it's all mm. these kind of um you know the blake seven or whatever with their ship computers that talk to you and mm. you can talk back i know i know you know in the age of uh, i'm not going to say her name but uh, the echo assistant or um siri or whoever the s lady yeah that yeah that having well we can say we can say her name as long as we don't say hey first but um but yeah the the idea of the idea of of uh, things speaking to you and you speaking back is not so alien now but that that's definitely something that i think they were borrowing from sci-fi to kind of create a create a style to the to the show that i i think does actually sort of place it in the in the sci-fi genre even when it's not necessarily doing anything terribly sci-fi yeah you know one of the things um that pegs this as being older is is that it is reading out something and and i think we figured out now that voice response and voice interaction are getting there there are times when it makes sense that there are there are mm-hmm. absolutely times when it makes sense and it is almost reaching the limit of what makes sense when i come in in the morning and say 
to the S lady, give me my daily update on my home pod. And it gives me the weather forecast real quick, reads off the current temperature and the weather forecast and whether I have any appointments today. And that's about the limit, especially since I only ever have like two or three appointments at the most. That's about the limit you want somebody rattling stuff off at you. And then it, then it sends a news segment from the radio. But, you know, you look at these older shows and they're really rattling off long lists of, of nonsense, which is obviously would be easier just to read, you know, and, and better comprehension. So, uh, I mean, obviously, yeah. there, there, are, there are dramatic reasons for that as well, in the sense that it allows the audience to know what the information mm-hmm. that being conveyed is when they probably wouldn't bother to read it on screen. And if you had a lot of information, it would, you'd have to, you know, leave it on screen for a long time and that would be terribly boring. Uh, and, you know, anyway, if, if you're sort of translating later, some of these freeze frame it and yeah, read it. Yeah, 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 exactly. But, um, you know, for, for, particularly for conventions that have, that have gone so far back to the kind of things that would have been used on the radio, where obviously there is an even greater dramatic benefit to having computers that speak. Nevertheless, oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, this, this feels like a situation where you don't need that. And it's just one of a number of things that is, is kind of borrowed from the genre for something mm. that is more of a kind of spy-fi you know yeah. more, more tech than but it but it it, it it's use it's using that stuff in maybe an era when sci-fi had become a bit unfashionable you know straight sci-fi um, mm-hmm. it's it, it it's it's maybe trying to 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 borrow some of those things in order to create a show that people aren't going to go or just a, another space opera and switch it off one thing I've noticed, and and I know that you're going to contradict me because they did they did it last week, so <laughs> I'm <laughs> it's not. But I've kind of noticed a trend, not a perfect trend, but a trend that in the earlier episodes there was a lot more of them popping open the control panels and getting yep. in there with the tweezers and the screwdriver and like try it now. And now there's a lot more of the pull out the fancy gadget that Roz has built and and wave it in front of it and oh doors open let's go and i kind of wonder if that's just you know it's sonic screwdriver land it's like it's not interesting that you have to get past the door mm-hmm. you know the heroes need to get past the door let's just get it out of the way and save the time and the effort and when the show was new it was important for you to understand that these people knew what the heck they were doing that, that they were savvy tech savvy they could get in there the nuts and the bolts and the wires and they open it and it still was pretty quick but you know as we've gone on take it as red they're good they, they've got all the gizmos the problem with that is is that all the other people should have the gizmos too or a lot of other people should have the gizmos as we kind of see with a guy today breaking into the austin institute with the with a you know, device he might as well have stolen right from team bugs Hold it up to the door, push a button or two, beep, doors open, go. Um, it, it it devalues what their their skill in a way, because their opponents are just as Yeah, savvy. I mean I I th- I, I, I I agree. I, I I think that the the reasons that you give 
are are good good reasons why we don't need that anymore but there's also i think the additional factor that possibly i mean it's a bit like the 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 cracking things open and working out which wires to pull with tweezers or whatever is is essentially that whole thing in many many action films where you have to defuse the bomb by snipping the red wire than the blue wire or whatever it is and in in a run of 10 episodes you can only do that so many times and they probably did it too often <laughs> to be fair in the first series but you can never have too many explosions oh no 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 <laughs> fair is the thought I, I think I think the other part of it, the, you know, the thing that you're you're touching on with other people having those gadgets is is something that I'm noticing changing in this series and ties in with something else that I was kind of reflecting on that connects with other things that we've talked about in this in this series or season um, for for the <laughs> US mm. audience, which um I think really sort of came to the fore with the whole security facility 47 in this the kind of very the the the, the very very improbable let's have a whole bunch of warheads in the London Docklands and what seems to have happened is that we have moved away from the kind of bugs land that we were establishing in series one because obviously a lot of the a lot of the show we commented on this a lot of the show filmed around the isle of dogs you know strong sense of location this is this is a 90s show it's obviously very british not just in not just british but in a kind of upcoming quarter of the british capital and that kind of grounded it in some way given that the show is very very much ungrounded in a number of other ways i think what's going on here is i mean it's not that there aren't still instances of seeing the docklands because we obviously get a whole sequence with with the railway which is a kind of icon of the area Mm. but even that it's like beckett refers to it as the rapid transit system not the dlr and i guess technically it is a rapid transit system and possibly on the kind of official project documentation it was referred to as that but no one would really call it that and when you combine that with thing other things that we've seen like the you know the privately run prison which niggled me at first and then kind of became a much bigger thing in the foreground it's almost like what they are doing and i finally kind of put my finger on what it reminds me of what they are doing is creating a parallel reality and it's much more like gotham city it's almost like this they're they're not they're slightly regretting ever setting it in london they're not referring to it as london anymore gotham Mm. is a way of giving you a a recognizable city you know gotham city is obviously an american city it it bears a number of similarities to some real places but by fictionalizing it you create a a different kind of world around it a slightly um a slightly heightened world a slightly futuristic world yeah and that's get away with, where bugs has gone yeah uh you, you can get away with things of like different structures of 
government in the city or uh, well, whatever like fits not, the narrative of the. Yeah, like uh, not not having any police, like that we never see the police in that. Well, that kind of fits with that. But so too, and I, I'm sorry, I've already forgotten what the organisation, um, Wentz works for was called. SSD. SSD. Okay. Uh, the Bureau of Weapons Technology. Again, they're kind of somewhat, somewhat plausible. I don't want to go too far here, but somewhat plausible sounding names for what are not real organizations in, in, in our world. And not only that, but it's not even like they are connected in any way to real organizations. So if you think about, I forget whether we actually got a name for it in Doomwatch, but the, whatever it was, the Department for Administrative Affairs. It's, it, it, was, it was kind of the ministry. It, it fitted within our known government structure, whereas we have spent some time trying to work out whether the, the Bureau of Weapons Technology, or SSD, is actually a government, an, an actual government department, some kind of quango, or actually some kind of strange private organisation. Now, I have noticed over the years... Uh... I think I've mentioned it on the on the podcast, but if not, I'll I'll get to it now. And I mean, this goes way way back to the 1920s, at least, because I can I can think of examples of it in the Saint novels by Leslie Charteris, going back as far as Meet the Tiger. Uh, but TV shows, I actually, you know, I, I think uh, Sherlock Holmes. I can ex- think of examples of this. They don't name real things in stories and books the british americans have done it you know you you'll see westerns or or old books and whatnot where they'll they'll refer to the pinkertons real organization completely fictional characters completely fictional felix leiter yeah that's a british book well yes and and it's not a universal thing I mean, they do mention the CIA. There's no doubt about that. And but you know, they also but mention Lighter works for the Pinkertons. Oh, he does later on. Yes. Well, actually, Sherlock, they mention Sherlock the Pink- Holmes mentions the mentions Pinkertons, Pinkertons right. as well. I'm I'm using that as a poor example, but there are a lot of things that for some reason the British won't mention. Like Simon Templer never had a real car in the entire time he drove. What's well, a Rondel? Yeah, but I've seen other examples where you could just tell by the way that they write it that they're just going out of the way just not to mention it. And I'm going to guess that's something to do with the way your libel or no. legal system is. Whereas no. in a work of fiction, we can we can mention the CIA all day and you can't do anything about it. But I've just always gotten that feeling. It's It's very... No, there it's are very numerous books that that, that that mention um, MI six or whatever the equivalent of your CIA would be. And... But there's an awful lot that don't. And that's... yes, but that's that's a decision about how much you fictionalize, isn't it? Because that's that's a that's a choice that gives you a certain amount of freedom. And I think it does depend on how how much fantasy or how fantastical you want your story to be. This 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 is very much on the fantastical end of it, whereas a story, you know, a spy story where you actually want part of the thrills to come from the fact that it is the authenticity of it, the fact that it feels like it's something real. That's where you try and bring in real organizations 
and try and convey that that sense of authenticity through the detailed understanding of how those organizations really work, which, you know, means hard research. I can understand why authors who don't particularly rely on that authenticity would prefer just to fictionalize it, not call it MI6, just call it universal exports, that kind of thing. Mm. Well, I I think there is an imbalance in, in the levels, and I don't know what it is, but there are times when it does not seem to make sense to me when they do it, when they bypass it. It's like, it, it's not, it, it does not make it more fictional to me. The Bureau of Weapons Technology doesn't actually make that more fictional to me. Um, partially well, because I'm an be. American. <laughs> more like, fictional than what? More fictional than what? I mean, whatever department you have that deals with. But we don't have a department that does what that department does. That's the point, isn't it? It's it's it gives you the freedom to create something that fits your story, rather than necessarily having to come up with some convoluted explanation why someone who works for some department. But we still really don't know what that department that does. Well, we do know that they are. That it's it's a you don't you don't have somebody that deals with export controls weaponry. of weapons. Well, it would probably be surely it would must. be it would be a home office thing, but possibly with the board of trade or whatever the equivalent. I don't even know what government departments there are anymore. D- DTI or whatever. It the thing about it is, if your audience and this is this is where for you as an American. The you, you you know you're you're you can say I don't I don't I don't know whether that is a real department or not. Well, actually, if your audience is made up of people who don't know that either, because you're putting out the show on a Saturday evening, and a lot of a lot of people watching it just don't care about that kind of thing. Whereas for a certain kind of um, you know, if if you were right, if you were John Le Carre writing a smiley story. You know that your audience do care about that sort of thing, does understand that sort of thing, and the authenticity does matter then. But if if, if they used a real department in this, they would still have to to explain what what they were doing. If it it turned out to be some branch of the Home Office or whatever, like I say, I don't know. I don't know who it would be. But they would have to, they would have to explain what that department was interested in because they wouldn't even have that explanatory title bureau of weapons technology to give you an inkling Mm. i mean i think that in assassins inc they actually explained that in addition i think that he said our job is to control the exports of high and make sure that high-tech weapons don't leave the country or come into the country or something. He actually gave an explanation of it. Very short, all it was needed. So that, I mean, that they didn't get out of that to, to framework that, but yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter. Well, one thing that while you were started on that crossed my mind, and I just want to say it before I forget it, we were talking about the, the balance of technology between good guys and the bad guys in this show. And that is one thing that I think is very different from the old, like Avengers, because it was always the baddies that had the tech or the weird, the weird, let's call it weird tech, where it's a machine that makes ghosts or pretends like you're traveling through time. And and the Avengers themselves solved it 
without that. Yes. And that is not well, what we have here. By and large, without it. I mean, I think Steed had a somewhat high-tech umbrella, but yes. Yeah, it was It was just, you know, it. it, it is not... Uh, what we get here is that our guys have all sorts of cool technology and third parties have all sorts of cool technology and the bad guys have all sorts of cool technology and they're all kind of uh pit. Although our guys obviously are the best because they're our guys. While we're on the subject of agencies, I'm still surprised. This is the second appearance of Wentz. He yes. was in shotgun wedding uh, and therefore the SSD. Why is it the SSD so and not the hive? <laughs> I, they created the hive at the beginning, and then that's it. Done. Never, never again. Do we? I don't know. I mean, I it. There doesn't seem to be that much of a kind of. Um, initially, there was not that much that was a recurring uh, cast, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the hive as an organization was created for one story. We we then had uh, Roland appearing in the second story. And I think Bureau of Weapons Technology, uh, well, I, did we decide it was mentioned in that story or not? Uh, okay. Re- regardless, we, of whether, rega- regardless of whether it was given a name. Um, oh, the name. Yeah, it, I don't know. It, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't contradicted in this. And, and now, now we've had his reappearance in the last episode. Um, and we're expecting that to come back, what with the title of the next yep. episode. And now we now we're getting the the uh, reappearance of uh, Wentz from Shotgun Wedding. We've also had the whole kind of Marcel thing where we have had a recur a recurring bad guy. I think they are now starting to use some of the or reuse some of the things that they in- initially introduced, but they didn't mm. introduce them with the intention of them ever being reused. Yeah, that's I think, why I think, that's why I think the SSD came along rather than it being another appearance for the hive, because at that point they weren't thinking about reusing stuff. And as far as I can tell, no crossover with the writers between Shotgun Wedding, no, and Newton's Run. I thought there might be because there was another thing in Shotgun Wedding that. I didn't even, you know, I knew Wentz was back when I'm watching the episode. And I go, oh, Wentz, he was in another one. I can't remember which one it is. I'll go look it up later on. So I knew that. Later on in the episode, something happened that made me instantly think of Shotgun Wedding. And after I was done doing my research and I found out that Wentz was in Shotgun Wedding too, I'm like, huh, must be the same writer. Nope, not the same writer. Not even not even close. And that was... Well- the the death of the baddie, uh, not 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 Ardvark or whatever his name is, um, <laughs> um, but the one that Ed murders, kills. Yes, he's fighting with the guy, just like Beckett was, uh, or was it Ed? I think it was Beckett uh, in Shotgun Wedding. Remember, I mentioned it. To me, it looked like Beckett will go with Beckett after more or less defeating the guy, flings him over the balcony and kills him. Ed, yes, he's being choked. He grabs the gun. He shoots the guy. This is a, in American television back a few years. There's just no way he would have shot the guy without that guy getting a hand on the gun for them to struggle. But it didn't appear that way. It appeared like Ed grabbed the gun, pointed at him, and shot him dead. Okay. And that the- made me think of Shotgun Wedding. This is like the same thing. It's just not quite the way we do it. 
But so there are a couple of things about that. Firstly, I don't know that we can be quite as categorical as that about the fact that they are not by the same writer because we don't know. We, right. you and I, that missing have not story. Yeah, we have not established who wrote Shotgun Wedding. Right? There's no. It's one of the two episodes that we've had so far where there is no on-screen credit as to who wrote it. So that's the one that Amanda Coe is uncredited listed in their IMDb, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, possibly, but do we know where IMDb have that from? Yeah, no, IMDb no clue. Have all sorts of nonsense, and I, I, I wouldn't put. And and I'll, I've got some other nonsense that might or might not be accurate too. But <laughs> yeah, go ahead. The, the so so that 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 could be that could be Calvin Clements for all mm -hmm. we know. I mean, it's probably not, but just because there is no on on screen credit, we don't know. The other thing is about you mentioning that this is not something that would have been done in American show then. Uh Calvin Clements Jr. Yeah. is an American if writer. You, if you can believe IMDB, well, no, that that's... was my I, I looked at that list of I looked at that list of stuff that he's written for or produced, you know. And and well, lit them off. The Some Wild, of them Wild West, are Wild Wild Mission West, Impossible. Buff Rogers, Airwolf, Knight Rider, MacGyver, uh, tons of other stuff. Barnaby Jones. I mean, it's it's a huge list. I know the name Calvin Clements Jr. I've seen it before. Uh, never seen it spelled up as Cal Clements Jr. before, and it's so, so out of place. It's so out of place in that list of shows that he's done. That massive list of American shows, and then. One British story on a British series and nothing else. And it may be right. I'm not I'm not saying it isn't well, because Cal Clement Jr. is on the show, but it's like IMDB is not perfect. And if there were two Cal Clements Jr. writing stories out there, it's possible that they'd get them confused. I, I really don't know. Well, uh, so, but I had doubts. Well. So first of all, Cal Clements Jr. is credited on screen, so we know yes, he is. that he is he is the writer of this episode. Secondly, yes. we have had an episode in this series written by Miles Miller and Alfred Goff. So the idea that um, the 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 show producers on Bugs would be looking for writers from both sides of the pond has already been established. So. I don't think it's necessarily that surprising that they once again turn to an American writer for this. I don't think it's surprised that Bugs would turn to an American writer for it. I, I didn't mean it that way. I just thought it was it's a little surprising to see that he does not appear to have dipped his toe in anywhere else ever in as you mean, far as in, I could see. Is the is the only British show? I think so. I think so. But it but isn't isn't that also true of Alfred Goff the Third. I can't remember what else what I, other stuff he's done. Now I'm pretty sure he hasn't done any other British stuff. Yeah, uh -huh. Luke. Uh, obviously, Luke, it wasn't Luke satisfactory because they only took bought the one story from him to, from Cal Clements. For Cal Clements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I, but I think Alfred Goff is back for another another episode later on. So I, I, I don't really have any doubt that that is who it is written by. Despite it, you know, despite the the um, Ed shooting the guy, yeah. Well, but that that's that's also heck. If I were if I were uh, a writer 
And I felt like I was constrained and I would by the, the, the television code or the unwritten code that says you have to do it this way. And this is one of the reasons that kind of spaghetti Westerns are kind of cool is that they're not quite bound by that same if I were a writer and I was given that opportunity, I'd go off and I'd write somewhere else so I could write it the way I wanted to write it. I, I'm not saying yeah, what Ed yeah, did was cool. wrong. I'm just saying that it it is unusual that the guy didn't at least, you know, give you the, the moment's doubt that perhaps maybe he was trying to shoot Ed with that gun too. And the gun goes off and the guy's dead. This, that's not what happens here. Um, uh, we don't see the, I don't think we see the gun actually shoot him, but we do see Ed pull it in and yeah, and then yeah, the guy is fairly, shot with a ray gun. Yeah, actually graphic for bugs. I thought. Yeah, so I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, you know, you yourself said you can't always trust IMDb, and I saw that and I thought that is that does feel possibly a mistake. Not saying it's not what's on credit, but you know, Cal Clements Jr., Calvin Clements Jr., um, sometimes Calvin Clements uh you know name put in three different ways over the years and they they make mistakes um i'm i'm not i yeah i'm not saying it it's based on that it's 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 based on the fact that we've got an on-screen credit um if there was another cal clements jr i mean i haven't been able to find one by doing an online search so i don't know who they would be getting it mixed up with well, I'll tell you what I would love to find, because I did, you know, I looked through that list of, of shows, and it's quite long. I mean, it, it really is. It's, I, I, I named the ones of interest to me, but, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger, and this guy's going all the way back 60s and possibly the late 50s and well into the 90s, 2000s. Uh, so it's a, a long, long career. And one of the things that I was going to say earlier is this plot of having a remote controlled dog is no different from at least a couple of episodes of shows I've seen that I can't pin right at the moment where someone steals a remote controlled mini micro robot to do something very much the same. And I could, wouldn't be surprised if we don't stumble across one of those in something Cal Clements Jr. has written elsewhere. It, I mean, it, it's it's another of those kind of holes in the plot where they actually mention the fact that be, be, uh, the, the the whole plot rests on the fact that our guys need the dog in order to get into security facility forty seven. Ed well, or someone says, they don't. "Why why couldn't they use a robot?" Uh, and the answer is well, because you know the the, the dog is like a remote control robot, except. It can jump and it can climb. So it can do things that the robot can't. Okay, fair enough. Except when we actually it see it getting into security facility 47, it doesn't do any of that. Nope. Nope. And, and Could have done it with the I'm robot not, all along. And I think I'm pleased that they are not pleased. I'm not sure. If you were going to do this, would you let the dog, even though you were in control of the dog, would you let the dog carry the bomb in its mouth or would you just strap the bomb to the dog? <laughs> it did. It. I have to say, it did remind me when I saw what they were going to do with the dog and the bomb. It did remind me of 
an episode of the day-to-day, which must have been from around that time, about the IRA using bomb dogs. And they had this whole, the, the, the day-to-day, for those not familiar with it, was a kind of spoof news program that was so good at spoofing certain things on the news that unfortunately news programs then went on to copy its style. But anyway, <laughs> the 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 particular example here was about the kind of quite bad taste uh, news report on terrorists using bomb dogs the ultimate solution to which was the was the counter-terrorist squads going around and sort of spraying them with some kind of what appeared to be fast acting resin that would effectively control the explosion <laughs> and just blast the dog up into the air rather than um anyway yes it did it did remind me of that it did <laughs> uh, yeah that was um mm. But you need the the point is you needn't have, have have angered the the RSPCA and whoever else by strapping a bomb to the dog, because you know your Roomba could have got into security facility forty seven. Yep. It was all ramps. Yeah, yeah, it, it probably could have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it was. And a, and why is there a doggy door for crying out loud? There's a doggy door. <laughs> the security facility what's that for maintenance mm. workers maintenance robots just the whole the whole idea yeah. of a place that humans couldn't access i mean fully automated is fine but you've still got to in some way maintain the thing so there have to be maintenance yep yeah oh, yeah and i mean so the yeah. argument is i mean ed goes into the control room and turns mm. off the security so exactly. yes, he's got the codes, but really, do we not think Roz couldn't cough up those codes in fifteen minutes? Yeah. No, I'm sure she could do it. So therefore, those guys could do it. Therefore, this elaborate ruse to get the dog, which you know, if they accidentally hurt the dog or it died, or you know, they get out of it's just so many, so many things that could go wrong that just don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wentz says to Beckett, uh, he talks about his uh, leaving the Marine Command. And I thought, I know they had that thing on the submarine once before. And I don't think Beckett was out of his depth there. But is this the first time we've heard that he's some form first, of naval? First I, yeah, first I can recollect. And it seems like that would be the place to mention the hive. <laughs> like, yeah. Giving up on your hive your hive training, your hive uh, thing. It, it, it was just kind of, it's like the, it's like the hive was name of somebody else's thing and they got in trouble over it. Oh, Oh, that's my new conspiracy theory. I bet that's it. I bet after that aired, somebody complained. I wrote this book in 1947 about an organization called the hive and you have stolen it from me. Uh, We will never use it again. Thank you. I can't believe that anyone else bothered with that. It's a rubbish name. I can't think that anyone else would have come up with it. I'm going to Google it later. I'm going to go back. I I swear I've seen it spelled H.I.V.E somewhere else in some other show. So, you know, in the era of Spectre and Thrush and Uncle and all that stuff, I bet there's a hive out there somewhere. All right. Um, oh, speaking of Beckett, he likes dogs. Now 
he has a personality. <laughs> Up till now, I wasn't sure. But now that we like, he's a dog person. He's okay. I like Peck. <laughs> Prior to that, he was just uh, the thug spy guy with the bad sense of humor. And the Docklands were absolutely empty. Did you notice that? Yes. I don't think I saw a single person on any of the trains, any of the platforms, any of the streets, anywhere. Now, when I went to the Docklands, which was after this, and I swear I've seen those very spots. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know how big it was at the time. I know it's much bigger now. I'd swear I've been to some of those spot, spots. It was a Sunday afternoon. And I got to tell you, it was pretty empty, but it wasn't that empty. That that part of town seemed to be kind of vacant, uh, but it was it was really obviously that they had keeping the people hidden off somewhere. I'm not sure they were. I think I think that in order to have filmed on the DLR, they would have had to have done it really, really off peak. So you're probably talking about very early hours in the summer, to guess, because they're actually on the tracks for part of it. So you yep. know, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't recognize that part. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, and, uh, well, you know, they they still would pull people back probably from from their scenes, but well, they would also have had the option, obviously, of hiring a load of extras. But I suspect they chose to spend their money on explosions instead. They saved it last week, so yeah. Well, quite. I was certainly very pleased to see a much better explosion with the tanker at the end. You know, even though the tanker was not actually a tanker. It had been completely hollowed out as a control center. Okay, still, I thought that... It still blew up as if it wasn't empty. I thought that too. I thought that looks like a tanker blowing up that's full of gas or something. That was... I thought, well, that's, that's so much better than the explosion we got of the incredibly high explosive that blew up last <laughs> week. Yeah. Instead, it's maybe, basically a port cabin. You know something? Maybe they know how to do tanker blow-ups. Maybe there's a book, an instruction on how to blow up tankers, you know, in the in the in the pyrotechnics guide. It's like how to make a good tanker explosion. This we got. Well, it's certainly blowing up a chapter on red mercury. So that's yeah, that's exactly. plausible. That's possible. Computer color recognition program used to encrypt the file. Couldn't they have just used steganography? What is a computer color recognition? I'll say it again. What is a color? What? Uh, I won't say it again. Right. Third time lucky. What is a computer color recognition program? I have no idea. I think it's the CCR. I, <laughs> the CCR program. I, I really don't know. Okay. She said that. And I just like, that sounds like gibberish to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was I was quite impressed that the document that they were busy trying to decrypt was half a gigabyte. Yes, this is ninety six. Right, that's not necessarily such a big deal now, but it's still quite a large file. But in nineteen ninety six, I mean, it would have fitted on a CD, and obviously they had CDs or whatever. But when when we had when we had CD ROMs, it was like they could. You could put so many files on them. I mean, hundreds mm -hmm. of files on them because we had been storing them on three and a half inch floppies that I think right. were like 1.4 meg or something. So, yeah, and a CD is about 0.6 of a gigabyte. So they could yeah. have just squeaked that thing in there. But it was a big file. It's a big file. And hey, when I abandon my headquarters, I leave the computer and just delete the file. <laughs> 
<laughs> Why destroy the computer? I've got ray guns. Um, <clears throat> not that that would have stopped Roz. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, that is an example of they completely threw BS in there, and and I mentioned steganography. It's not well known. It certainly would have been even less known and it would have been an opportunity for them to throw something out there that was plausibly a thing, mm-hmm. you know, encrypting a steganography for those who don't know is, is encrypting data inside images. Um, so it's a way of passing, passing data and digital uh, actually doesn't even, I don't think it even has to be digital file. I think there's a way that people used to do steganography with actual pictures um, but I, I cannot tell you how that is, but I, I think the term's older than digital images. Um, but yeah, that would have been one. Also team bugs headquarters is looking stranger and stranger week after week. Cause it's flat. I'm, I'm not convinced that's her flat unless she lives at the office. I think I, it's Rose's flat. I think it, I think it has something in common with Tara King's flat as well. Yeah. Bad colors. Uh, it's not on the ground floor. In fact, I think it's several stories up. And yet the entrance is at the higher of the two levels. I mean, I guess you wouldn't call it a flat. You'd call it a maisonette because there does appear to be an upstairs. I, but, I don't know what a maisonette is, to be quite honest. I've heard the term, but I have no clue what that is. Uh, essentially a flat on two two levels. I'm not sure if it quite counts because the upper level, certainly in Tara King's flat, the upper level is just the landing before you come down into the, onto the floor where all the living space is, which I think applies to Roz's flat as well. Hmm. Quite literally, I would not have thought there was a word for that, but all right. (laughs) I I think that um, this may be a thing, a Brian Clemens thing. It could could be. I, I don't know, but now they've added a dining room, a kitchenette, that that seems to be new. I feel like the computer room that she's got going there in the back has been augmented with more glass walls. And wow, the sound effects, those were intrusive in, in her in her workspace, in her home, if that's what it is. I, I, I don't know. I, I almost wonder if they all just live there. <laughs> Yeah, three rooms, an well, office, I've... and upstairs, downstairs. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's the, I want to see the front. I want, I want to see the I'm front sure door with is, a big I'm sign sure that says Roger's Team flat. Bugs on it. I'm sure this is Roz's flat that we've seen in Series 1, the, the, the front of it. I mean, we saw Ed climbing up the outside. Hmm. Yeah, I would have said this is a completely different... This feels like a completely different place than where they would meet at the, in the tag scenes in Series 1. No, to me. See, I'm sure it's, it's a... the same. I'm sure it's the same. What I will say is that I did think this was an actual decent tag scene for once. I may have been influenced by the fact that I was relieved we got through a whole episode without uh, Jean Daniel Marcel in it. But yes, that was I good. thought it was. Uh, I thought it was actually sort of quite well constructed, even if not uproariously funny. Well mannered dog. Well mannered dog. Yep. yep. <laughs> but uh, and they weren't even using the remote control on him. I see Austin Institute doesn't care if their dog's out on the loose now. <laughs> He's having play dates with Beckett. <laughs> it's, it's her only friend. <laughs> Raised in a lab now. Now has a friend. 
I don't know that I have anything else on the episode. I it was it was it was funnish, but it was well they were twisting things around to get where they wanted to go. Yeah, but that you know, I think that is it that is a kind of bugs thing. I I just I don't know. It was it was nicely lit. There were the music was good. It, it entertained me. I don't know. I don't know if my expectations are coming coming into this are being exceeded because they were quite low. But I'm definitely enjoying Bugs more than I remember my from my contemporary viewing of it. Yeah, you were younger and angry young man, and you know how that goes. Nothing's good then. And and I you know the, I may have been I may have been hoping for something more. This is definitely definitely empty calories but i am <laughs> kind of appreciating some of the the fun stuff i am i am going to just say one little thing that is quite niche um but i'm sure that the the bill aficionado segment of our audience will have spotted that uh although jay griffiths had just finished a stint on the bill when she came in when she did this show Mm-hmm. as a regular the the thing that was remarkable about this cast was that almost everyone in it was in the bill at the same time as each other a couple of years after this show so alkmaar george mm. rossi was uh for those who didn't quite spot it was dc duncan lennox dr kim clara salmon the novelist Clara Salmon, by the way, um, was D.S. Claire Stanton, whose, and this is a slight spoiler if you're not aware of it, whose handler was Tanson, Pete, Pete Lee Wilson. Um, he, he played DCI Hodges in The Bill. So it was, it was, it was strange seeing them all together because you thought at that, at that point, they, you know, this might have been the first time any of them had met the others, but in a couple of years' time, they would all have been working together on a regular basis. So, we've already got a rapport. We met on the bugs. Exactly, exactly. Which is which is funny when you consider how very different the shows are and how very different the characters they played were. But um, you know, if if we're talking about nineties nineties British tele- television, um, any any kind of viewers from the time may have spotted that crossover so i just had to mention it all right well i i definitely uh did not recognize that um all right well next time we're going to be looking at a two-parter the series finale or season finale depending on how you want to look at that uh episodes nine and ten the bureau of weapons and a cage for satan Ooh, devil worship is coming to the show it's going to be people in hoods and sacrifices and sounds like sounds like fun simon thank you for joining me it's a pleasure as always listeners i do hope you'll join us all again next time on fusion patrol thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this episode of fusion patrol we hope you'll consider supporting us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol or buymeacoffee.com slash fusion patrol For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently doing a special series on Season 2 of Babylon 5. There's over a decade of previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on our website or Twitter. 
You can also find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusion patrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.